You're listening to The Sigrun Show, episode number 369. In this episode, I talk to Gisli Olafsson about leadership in crisis. Welcome to The Sigrun Show. I'm your host, Sigrun, creator of Samba, the MBA program for online entrepreneurs. With each episode, I'll share with you inspiring case studies and interviews to help you achieve your dreams and turn your passion into profits. Thank you for spending time with me today. Building an online business takes time. I share with you proven strategies to help you get there faster. You'll also learn how to master your mindset, up-level your marketing, and succeed with masterminds. Today I speak with Gisli Olafsson, who is a disaster expert speaker and advisor on innovation and digital transformation in the social good sector. Gisli is currently the chief technology officer of One Acre Fund, an African-based NGO that is helping smallholder farmers out of extreme poverty. Previously, he headed up the search and rescue team in Iceland, and as a crisis leader, he has worked with organizations like the UN and the World Health Organization. He is the author of the book, the crisis leader, and that's the topic of today's episode. Before we dive in, I want to announce additional turnaround resources I've put together because of the coronavirus and the recession. I gave my Samba students only 36 hours to come up with and share their best free resources to help you during these challenging times. My team has to put together a special Samba resource page, which you will find in the show notes, with all the resources submitted. There were over 100 resources to pick from, all for free. You'll find resources in a number of different languages and covering a whole variety of amazing topics. I bet there is something for you there. With everything that's going on, you might think that PR is not important right now, but it's actually one of the best things you can work on. I'm currently reviewing my own PR strategy and doubling down on everything in terms of PR. Knowing how to use free PR in a crisis is actually one of the best ways of becoming known and winning the war for attention. At the end of the day, you'll want to become the go-to expert that everyone remembers after all of this is over. And that's what you can learn in the PR challenge with Selena So. That's what's happening right now and for the next couple of weeks. So head on over to the show notes where you can find the link to sign up. I am planning a live weekend bootcamp where you can create your recession-proof offer. You may have realized by now that you maybe have an offer that is not exactly what your ideal client needs right now. They need something different and you don't have it. This is what most online entrepreneurs and offline entrepreneurs are experiencing in the moment. And instead of running around in circles, thinking about what you can sell to your ideal client, you need to pivot. That's where the Life Weekend Bootcamp comes to the rescue. In less than 48 hours, you're going to create a new offer and you'll learn how to frame it so that it practically sells itself. There is a small fee to join to ensure that you actually take action. In the show notes, you will find a link with all the turnaround resources mentioned, plus this weekend bootcamp. On my Facebook page, I have put up a post uh, with the offer of adding your offer. So if you have an offer for $100 or less, you can add it to this Facebook post. And together we can make sure that we boost the economy. 
If you find something that you like from that list, please go ahead and buy it. You support another small business owner. And together we can make sure that, yes, we cannot stop the recession, but we can make it milder for us online business owners. You'll find a link to that Facebook post also in the turnaround resources. I've been mentioning the turnaround resources. We have about 10 different resources we've put together. And I've been mentioning in this and the last episode. And by going to our turnaround page, you'll find them all in one place. The link is again in the show notes. So head on over to the show notes right after you've listened to this episode at sig.com forward slash 369. And you'll find that page, the turnaround, the resources page, plus all links to Gisli Olafsson and his book, Crisis Leader, which he has offered us for free. Uh, he also said to us in this episode that if it's not currently free, when you check it out, then just wait a little bit. He opens it up from time to time. He's not trying to make money off this book. He really wants everyone to be able to lead in a crisis. So I am hoping that you download his book. I am so excited to be here with Gisli Olafsson, who is an expert in leadership in crisis. Welcome to the show, Gisli. Thank you, Sarah. So what makes you an expert in leadership for crisis? Well, maybe the fact that for the last 25 years, I've been responding to disasters, first small ones, but then larger and larger ones. And, you know, for the past, uh, what is it, 15 years around the world as part of teams for either UN, private sector or NGOs. Explain uh, what a disaster expert does. So my role has mainly been around coordination between different organizations, how they can work better together uh, in the midst of uh, emergencies. So a lot of it uh, has been around getting people to look beyond just what they themselves as a single organization can do and how by working together, they can achieve more impact. Mm. It looks like that is Part of it is happening right now, but we're also seeing the worst and the best of people in this crisis we're in right now. Is that also your experience? Yes. The sad thing is that, uh, or maybe the good thing is, uh, depending on how you look at it, is that when a crisis occurs, you really see who are the leaders. Uh, you see who steps up, who works together, who addresses the problems, and who are the ones who really just don't listen to you know, what the experts are saying, don't take it seriously, don't want to work with others, just isolate themselves. It is by working together, whether that's as a nation or you know, as a community, you know, at all levels, even as you know, the entire world. How can we work together to address these things? And it's beautiful to see how a lot of that kind of collaboration is happening across the world right now not necessarily between countries, but between people. Yeah. So give us an example of what you have done as a disaster expert. You are called up, like explain a little bit how that happens. Sure. So for example, when the, the earthquake hit Haiti just over 10 years ago, I was leading uh, the Icelandic urban search and rescue team. And, you know, my phone went off telling me that there had been an earthquake 7.1 in Haiti. 
knowing that Haiti is a very underdeveloped country and seeing that the earthquake happened very close to Port-au-Prince, the capital, I knew this was going to be bad. So we had been practicing and planning for this for years uh, within the Icelandic search and rescue community. So we were actually ready to go. And we jumped on, the, on a plane from Iceland Air uh, and flew to Haiti and ended up being the first team on the ground. And there we ended up saving a number of people that were stuck in collapsed buildings and truly be able to help uh, those in needs. And that's why I do these things. One person you save, or even as I started out as a search and rescue volunteer, that one child that went missing and you find it, that gives you payback. You know, I, I, I call it, it's the vitamin that I get shot straight into my heart that makes me want to keep on doing these things forever. Yeah. And where are you currently? You are not in Iceland right now. No, I'm actually in Kigali, Rwanda, uh, where I'm working. And what are you doing there? I work as the chief technology officer for a, an organization called One Acre Fund, and they work across uh, 10 countries in Africa, helping smallholder farmers, which many of live live on under $2 a day, escape extreme poverty. And like I said, we have about a million farmers that we're helping. And uh, again, you know, you see one farmer talk proudly about how Our work has been able to let his kids go to university. That keeps you willing to work day and night to get things done. Yeah, that's beautiful work you're doing. So just before we hit record on the show today, you said this was about to happen, the coronavirus. Can you explain why you knew this would happen one day? Well, we all know that viruses and pandemics, they happen regularly. It's been, you know, over a decade since we had the big pandemic of the Spanish flu. But back in 2009, uh, I actually ended up spending six weeks at the WHO headquarters uh, in Geneva uh, dealing with the swine flu virus. And people were very afraid that that was going to be the pandemic that we're experiencing now. And then five years ago, I deployed to West Africa to respond to the Ebola outbreak that was there. Thankfully, uh, you know, Ebola is not as contagious as the coronavirus is. So it was easier to kind of contain it within those three countries. But at the same time, it's also interesting around the Ebola was that it was not how much healthcare resources were put at dealing with that The key thing that stopped the Ebola was getting people to change behaviors, to stop touching, to wash hands, actually also to stop washing the bodies of those that died, because that is a cultural tradition in West Africa, but something that led the Ebola virus to, to spread very quickly. So it's interesting that it's behavioral change that stopped the Ebola there. Uh, and that's exactly what we're being told right now with coronavirus, which is wash your hands, keep your distance, isolate yourself. All these things are behavioral things. They're not medical things. Yes, we do have you know amazing hospitals and amazing healthcare workers who are dealing with those that get sick. But but the way to stop things is to change our behavior. Mm. 
I just uh, watched the TEDx talk from Bill Gates from March 2015, where he says the biggest danger is not another war, it's a virus. So why didn't we prepare better for this? <laughs> Good question. The truth is actually that we are really bad at preparing for any kind of threat, whether that is at a national level or even down at the personal level. We kind of look at a thing like, you know, a pandemic or, or even an earthquake or, you know, an eruption or any, any kind of disaster. And we, we know they will happen. We know there are simple things that we can do to stop things. Like, you know, you have a bookshelf behind you. If you're in an earthquake zone, there are simple ways to fasten the bookshelf to the wall so that it doesn't fall on you uh, when the earthquake happens. Yet we don't do it. And the same applies at, at the national level. We spend money on things that are not preparedness in, may, in most places because that just isn't sexy. You know, putting something on, the, you know, on your bookshelf and fixing it is it's not sexy. It's not something that you can easily sell to your voters, for example, that you spend money on that. But guess what? Once things happen, people want you to be spending things on that. And when it comes to natural disasters, there was a, there was a study done by the World Bank a few years ago, which pointed out that for every dollar spent on preparedness, you would save at least six and even up to $10 in response. And that's interesting to think about at this time, you know, what if we had spent a little more money on these things? What if we had prepared a little bit better? Uh, thankfully, in our home country of Iceland, they did take this uh, seriously and have been preparing, which is why you see, you know, a much more coordinated response there than in many other countries. They didn't necessarily put money into it, but they put time and thought into thinking about how do you coordinate, how do you prepare, how do you do these things? Whereas other countries like the UK, for example, you're seeing they really don't know where and how to respond and they're constantly changing their tactics. It's easy to talk about preparedness afterwards, after the fact, but it is a lot harder in, you know, before. But think about this, you know, I, I encourage your listeners to think about preparedness for everything for all kinds of dangers, all kinds of threats that there are in their environment or in their world that you live in, even you know, in your business. Just go through in your mind what can happen. And just the fact that you've maybe done what we often call a desktop exercise in the disaster world, you, know, you, you spend an hour just thinking through, if this happened, what would I do? Just that little exercise, mental exercise of having done that, is going to save you so much time when you have to deal with that. And that doesn't have to be dealing with disasters. That can be dealing with any kind of business threats that you have. What are you going to do if nobody signs up for your program? What are you going to do if you have to cancel things? You know, just doing that mental exercise of doing a little bit of risk management in your mind can truly save you a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of pain and anger later on when you have to figure out, you know, all these things under a lot more stress. So we talked about that this was about to happen. Can you explain a little bit 
why you also kind of had the feeling that you knew at some point a virus would spread around the world. Was it just a matter of time or was it something in our behavior that we didn't want to change or we just put on a blind eye? I think what has really changed around the world, even just in the last decade, is global travel. We go everywhere. And with that global travel, it becomes a lot more difficult to, you know, stop these viruses from spreading. You know, when West Africa had the Ebola outbreak, uh, you had very few cases that kind of escaped those three countries that were But one of the reasons that that happened was there was no air traffic. After it started, they stopped all air traffic. There was only actually only one airline flying between those three countries and the rest of the world, and that was Brussels Airlines. And that was because the Belgium government decided there needed to be a, an air bridge between the two countries, and they did it in a very secure, very organized manner. And everybody was tested on both ends uh, and all of that. But we had there an outbreak happening in, a, in pretty underdeveloped countries. So many of those that were, or most of those that were getting sick actually would never dream of even going on an airplane. Here you have an outbreak that you know, starts in China. We all know that China has evolved greatly in the last two decades. There are more millionaires in China than anywhere else in the world which means there is now a, a middle class there that travels all over the world. So it's easy to spread. And then, you know, it only takes one person to go from one place to another to spread this. So it was bound to happen. And, you know, you, you're seeing a lot of travel restrictions and other things happening now. But one has to wonder whether that is a bit too late, that we should have gotten stricter on things a lot sooner you know, not necessarily close all borders, but kind of start thinking about how do we test people more effectively and things like that. Even here in, in, in Rwanda, they have actually, for the last three years, measured the temperature of every person arriving using automatic sensors. You actually don't know that they're doing this. Why? Because right next to Rwanda is the Democratic Republic of Congo, or DRC. And they've been having Ebola now for, for the last couple of years. So it was, wasn't set up for this pandemic. It was actually set up for Ebola. Because guess what? One of the signs there is that you get a high temperature. So you know, having these tools in place already to, to kind of spot those that are uh, potentially getting sick, it could have helped a lot. But funny enough, those temperature uh, sensors, I see them all around Africa, but I don't see any of them anywhere in, in Europe. Yeah. So it, it looks like Africa is more prepared than Europe. They've had to deal with Ebola and other diseases in the past. So they, they've maybe prioritized that higher than the rest of us have done. We've been more worried about whether you bring, you know, a knife or, or scissors on board than we are about, you know, whether you bring a virus. Yeah, that's kind of a, ooh, that thought alone is, is, is a, ugh, gives me chills. Let's talk about leadership in times of crisis. You, you said earlier, this is where we recognize the true leaders and those who are obviously not equipped to lead. But how does a leader respond to this? Now, of course, my listeners are mostly 
business owners, so we're thinking about it from a business perspective, but just talk from your experience. How should a leader respond to this? A leader, you know, is someone that when challenges come to you, you actually look at them and you think about what can I do? You know, how can I do things to make these things better? How can I improve things? How can I address these things? How can I help others? Rather than thinking just about yourself. You know, it's really easy to give in to the fear, to really just say, I better pack up my things and just jump on the next plane and lock myself in a cabin in the woods and come back in, in a year and see if the world is still there. And we saw this, you know, a lot during the uh, financial crisis in Iceland in 2008. Sadly, there were a lot of people who you would have thought would be the leaders because of their titles, who just became worried about how it would affect their own personal situation. Some of them were, became catatonic. Some of them actually had nervous breakdowns. But then there were others. And I always say, you know, a leader has nothing to do with your title. Copying, you know, one of my favorite authors, Robin Sharma. Uh, his title of his good book on that. And it was actually in that crisis that you had a lot of people who stepped up, stepped up and did things way beyond what their titles were, way beyond what you know their mandates were, and did the things that needed to be done to move things forward, who are willing to say, this is tough, this is going to be difficult, but we can get through this. And... For your listeners who are business leaders, don't look into the despair and just give up. That is the worst thing that you can do. Look at the opportunities. There's a great example uh, happening right now in New York City. There is a chef there named Jose who created a fantastic NGO that I've had the opportunity to work alongside in Mozambique last year called World Kitchen. And he owns a number of restaurants in, in New York City. He has changed them all into a production site for creating food for those that cannot afford food and those elderly who cannot go out and grocery shop. And by doing that, he is not only creating work for his staff, but he is also helping others. And by doing that, he is going out to those that are, you know, have money and say, would you fund this? So here you see somebody who's taken the fact that all of his restaurants would have been closed. He wouldn't have gotten any revenue in maybe for months. But what did he do? He found a way to help others and to make a difference. And at the same time, he is saving his business. And, you know, it's that kind of thinking outside of the box thinking about what you can do. Right now you have, you know, hundreds of millions of people sitting at home for the first time, you know, not going to work. You know, a lot of your listeners are doing online work and you yourself are doing online work. Like you said to me before you started recording, you know, this isn't so different for you. You're, you're at home, you know, you work from home. For a lot of people that is, a new thing. And 
guess what? All of these people are glued to their laptops, glued to their phones, looking for things to do, things to learn, things to experience. And if you and your listeners can create you know, content for them to learn, content for them to become a little bit calmer in these difficult times, those people who listen to your show for the first time because they're now sitting at home over the next 30 days as you're, as you're doing your turnaround talks, those are people who are going to continue listening to you. Those are people who are going to look for you, towards you, for, for insights and help. So, you know, if you think about this from a purely from an online business perspective, this is a major change in this business. Because after this, you will have people who are used to and have become sensitized to using online training, online services, online everything. Everybody's shopping online now. So rather than look at this as a, a terrible challenge that, you know, there's no way to get over it, look at it as an opportunity, not to sell at the moment, but believe me, if you give like you're doing, you're giving out free content, you're helping people become more calm, look towards the future, guess what? They will buy from you. And every single person who's ever done anything to help out in a time of crisis, they know that it pays back a million times. Why would Jose create World Kitchens? Because guess what? People now go to his restaurants in New York City to eat because they know that he is donating a lot of his own money towards responding to crisis around the world. So it always comes back a million times. And it, not necessarily in money, but I can tell you from you know, helping others for a quarter of a century, it pays back here in your heart, you know, a trillion times. And that's, that's why you continue doing it. So as a leader, look for the opportunities and don't give up. So we talk about, you know, leadership and some people think like, oh, I'm not a leader. You know, I'm just trying to build my online business. I need to be selling something. Like, what do you say to them? You can always be a leader. It doesn't matter what your title is. It doesn't matter what you know, your business is, what you're doing. It's how you respond, how you do things, uh, especially those that think about their community, those that think about how do I improve commu my community? How do I improve people's lives? How do I help those in need? And you can do that through multiple ways. It doesn't need to be like me jumping on the next airplane when a disaster happens. It can be through your microphone and through your computer. That is what is a leader. It has nothing to do whether you are a CEO or anything else. It's the old thing about how people always confuse management and leadership. You know, you don't have to have a billion people responding, you know, reporting to you to be a leader. I know people who, during the financial crisis, had no people reporting to them, yet were people who did some of the most critical steps to ensure Iceland did not become bankrupt. They did not have fancy titles. They did not you know, run the biggest companies. They were not the prime ministers or the, or the central bank governors. They were people who stood up and said, 
we need to work towards a better world for not just myself, but for everybody. So I'm going to do what it takes to make that happen. Those are leaders. And anybody, anybody who looks towards the future, looks towards how to improve things, how to, how to get through the challenges that we go through, those are leaders. You have written a book on leadership. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I got, after going to Haiti and doing this for so long, I kept telling stories. I kept telling stories to people to kind of try to teach them the various parts of, of leadership that I had experienced. And, you know, I read a lot about leadership. I read a lot about, you know, human behavior and so on. And I wanted to just figure out a way to kind of get that out to everybody. And I was challenged by someone to say, you know, go write it. And I was like, oof, yeah, but, you know, is that going to happen? So I even went the even more critical way of challenging myself. I actually launched a Kickstarter campaign. And I actually, I actually had about 700 people buy the book before I had written a single word. So I love that. That meant I had to deliver because, you know, yeah. I put that huge pressure on myself. So I started writing. I jokingly say that even though it took me about nine months to complete, overall, I think it took me about, if I had totally locked myself in a cabin somewhere, it would have been two weeks, which is interestingly something, you know, you hear other authors say, and some of them do, like Paolo Coelho, your neighbor in Switzerland, you know, he... Uh, he does that. He writes his book in like two to three weeks. Robin Sharma just did the same. So I did. Uh, it was written on airplanes. It was written in hotel rooms. And the final chapters were actually written as I drove from Seattle to San Diego, my wife sitting next to me in, a, in the car, and I dictated while she typed. And believe me, that 17-hour drive from Seattle to San Diego Felt like it was a couple of hours of driving because, you know, we started out in Seattle and before we knew it, we were at the border of California and we were like, where, where, where did time go? You know, so writing a book is, it was fun. And I love the fact that it's been used uh, by various uh, universities as a textbook around uh, crisis leadership. And it's called The Crisis Leader. I regularly make it available for free. So if it isn't free when you click on it, Hopefully it will be very soon again, because for me, it was more about sharing these best practices, these lessons to the wider community, rather than necessarily making, you know, millions of dollars of, of writing it. I didn't do your course on how to make money up books and, <laughs> and so on. Well, you have the heart in the right place and, and you are getting, you know, you have a job doing what you love. And books are not the best way to earn money, actually. It's better done with online courses and group programs. But books are a great way to build your authority like you've done. I think, you know, why I invited you on the show is one of the reasons. Well, I knew you already because we actually, way back in the days through the IT industry, we knew each other. So I knew of your work. But a book is something that just like, okay. You've done the work. You've actually also summarized all your thoughts. And it's often those who have written a book. It's easier to have a talk and interview because 
they've thought it through. Like you said, you have the stories already ready there to share. So Gisli, we're gonna have links to your website, to your book and the show notes. And thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Likewise, thank you for inviting me. As mentioned before, we've put together a special turnaround resources page with all the resources we have put together because of the coronavirus and the recession. So head on over to signal.com forward slash 369, where you can find this turnaround resources page, plus all the links to Gisli Olafsson and his book, The Crisis Leader, which he has offered our listeners for free. And he said in this episode that if it's not free when you happen to click on the link, then just wait a little bit. He opens it up for free from time to time on Amazon. He is not in it for the money around his book. He really wants everyone to lead in a crisis, and I want you to lead in this crisis. Thank you for listening to The Sigrun Show. Did you enjoy this episode? Please let me know. Send me an email or mention me on Instagram or Facebook. We want more people like you to find this podcast and listen to episodes like this one. See you in the next episode. Oh,